1: Hi everyone and welcome back to New Books in Buddhist Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Sansa your host of the channel, and we'll be talking to Klaus Dieter Mattes and Michael Sheehy today. We have two editors here, which will be wonderful, um, about their book called The Other Emptiness, Rethinking Nishintong Buddhist Discourse in Tibet, published by Sunny Press. So yes, welcome both of you. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: Yeah, welcome. And, uh, thanks for doing this recording for us. Yes, Arinsuma. thanks so much for inviting us on.
1: Yeah, no, I've been very excited about this for a long time. So it's great to
2: have you both here.
1: So, yeah, so I think tell us a bit about yourself. And let's start with Klaus. Um, just kind of a bit about your background.
2: Yeah, since early on, when I was uh, studying uh, Buddhism, I was uh, interested in models of reality uh, to explain uh, the new findings in modern physics, uh, what we have in quantum physics, for example, with a double-slit experiment, the uh, entanglement and uh, the uh, wave-particle-like duality. And I was a little bit frustrated uh, when I looked to Western philosophy. So I started uh, studying Buddhism. And uh, soon I found out uh, you cannot just work with uh, interpreters and you have to learn yourself Tibetan and talk to Tibetan learned masters uh, directly in their own language. And then I found out you have to do Sanskrit on top of that. And uh, so I uh, took up uh, my studies of uh, Tibetan and uh, Indian studies and uh, with a focus on uh, Tibetan Buddhist uh, philosophy. And uh, since the very beginning, I was uh, interested in questions of emptiness dependent arising what is left over in emptiness if there is at all something left and so uh, yeah at some point I met uh, Kempo Sildimgyanso Rinpoche and I was really inspired by uh his teaching and uh his uh also like uh emphasis of shentong or like uh the empty of other uh like approach to uh to emptiness and uh, he made me study the Maitreya works and uh uh, told me to do like uh, research uh, on Shantong. So that's how I got started uh, to work on this topic. And uh, I'm glad uh, that I met Michael Sheehy. That was, uh, I think, uh, when we started to talk about this project, that was at the IEPS conference in uh, Taiwan, wasn't it, Michael? And uh, then, uh, or oh, even before I had. Organized a panel on Shantong at the IS conference in Vancouver. And then uh, Michael did another conference a year later in uh, uh, Taiwan at the IEPS conference. And then we thought like, uh, it would be good to have a book project. But uh, I think we have to credit at this point uh, Michel Martin, who uh, like uh, first had the idea of this book and uh, also made established the contacts with Sunny.
1: That's that's so really a realization of quite a long project.
2: Yeah, mm, yeah. Uh, we have been uh, working for many years on that. Uh, I, normally, it, it should be more fast to publish a book like that. But then again, you know, when you look at the list of the authors, it's like all like very important like scholars working in the field of Shantong uh, published in this book. And that's quite an achievement uh, to, to have uh, people like Matthew Kapstein, Dojo Wangchuk, and, and all these uh, important scholars who, had, who have something to say or something important to contribute. Uh, they could publish, uh, or we convinced them to publish in this volume.
0: Yes, yes.
2: That's very, that's very unique. Yes, so it's so. a very exciting volume.
0: And Michael, what about you? So I began my interest in Buddhism and Buddhist studies um, really as a, kind of a child. I became very interested in meditation and um, understanding Asian medicine and uh, modalities of treatment and kind of contemplative methods and so forth. And then when I um, you know, went to college, it became very clear to me that I could study this. And, and I found that very exciting. So I spent my undergraduate studying uh, Buddhist studies and Asian religions. And um, during that time, went to India and Nepal and started to travel in, in Japan and Asia elsewhere. And um, after graduating uh, undergraduate, you know, I went back to India for a few years to, to study and to learn the languages. I knew I wanted to learn Tibetan at that time and had already begun to do so. Um, and then, by the time I went to graduate school um, in Buddhist studies, I really became very interested in um, issues around uh, the nature of mind and what it is about the contemplative traditions, uh, Buddhist in general, but really Tibetan contemplative traditions, that um, you know was theorized from, uh, or at least supposedly theorized in philosophical language um, about contemplative experience. And, um, you know, in so doing, in studying and studying Madhyamaka and Yogacara and so forth, um, really came to Tibetan interpretations of that. And I was very much uh, studying kind of Nyingma Kagyu interpretations at that time, and was sort of on a path to, to a dissertation, probably in um, sort of Dzogchen veins of thought. But um, I had a friend of mine when I was in graduate school who who was in India. She came back and she said, "Oh, I met this Lama, and he came from Tibet, and he gave me this book, and I promised him that I would translate it." And I said, "Oh, that's you know that's cool. You know, there's lots of Lamas coming from Tibet and India, and da da da." And she said, "No, like I don't know what to do with it." And she gave it to me because she knew I, um, you know, I was a graduate student learning Tibetan. And I said, yeah, that's cool. And I just kind of put it on the shelf. Um, I remember very distinctly the shelf in my my kitchen there, my bookshelf, and thought nothing of it, just let it sort of um, collect dust. And then one morning I went and I picked it up and um, I started to read it. And it was by a a kempo from a Jonang monastery in uh, Zamtang in eastern Tibet, an Amdo who had come to India. And he had written this book and published it in India, in Tibetan. And it was on philosophy and the history of all what he called the five schools or traditions of Tibetan Buddhism, including the Jonang. And I just thought this was fantastically interesting. I had been aware of Matthew Kapstein's work um, and other things that have been published largely out of Nippam's thought on on Zhentong at that time, um, but hadn't really, thought about that too seriously. So I started to read that little booklet and then I ended up going to India. And, um, in so doing, I met, uh, one of the senior, uh, really elder masters of, uh, the Jonang tradition who had been in India at that time, just traveling and, um, through happenstance, I, I ended up spending, uh, several months with him. And at one point in conversations, he turned and he looked to me and he said, well, if you really want to study this you have to come to tibet and the kind of you know the kind of like subtext there was like nobody here understands this stuff right like you know because there were really no jonang lamas uh, very few in exile um and we were actually at shimla at the monastery which is the headquarters of the jonang in, in, in uh, india at the time and i said okay So I went and I went and spent the next three years in um, Golok, in a monastery, a Jonang monastery in eastern Tibet. And I started to study this kind of um, wholeheartedly and intensively. And my dissertation ended up on,
2: uh, you know,
0: on the Jonang and so forth. So that's how I became immersed in sort of Jonang and Zhentong thinking.
1: Yeah. So I guess you both have a background in the Kagyu and then you branched off at some point because of this auspicious coincidence.
2: Well, I have to uh, to add that uh, Kimpo Gyanso made me study the works of Dolpopa right away. And uh, of course, I got also interested in uh, Chonang studies and uh, I'm traveling to Eastern Tibet to Amdo and meet uh, like Chunan campus. We had invited uh, Kendra Rinpoche for a full semester as a visiting professor to Vienna three years ago to uh, teach on uh, Kala Chakra and Shantong. how Shantong view can be justified on the basis of Kala Chakra. And uh, we are also working in a, a current project with campus in uh, Samtang and in Golog also. So uh, like, we have a lot uh, in common, so to say, Michael and I.
1: Yeah, definitely. So, Klaus, you already said a little bit about how this book manifested in the form it is. It all began in Taiwan, right? How long ago was that? Tell us a bit
2: more. Yeah, I had to correct myself. It it started in Vancouver, in fact. uh, It's uh, Like in 2010, we had uh, a conference of the International Association of Tibetan Studies, and I had organized a panel on Shentong and uh, a few of the contributors to the volume were there at the panel. And then, uh, like, uh, just a year later at the International Association of Buddhist Studies Conference in Taiwan, Michael had organized a similar panel on Shantong, And then uh, some who were there in Vancouver, like, were again in the panel in uh, Taiwan. And then we started to have the idea to, uh, to publish, uh, the, like, papers uh, we read and uh, also invite other important like scholars who work on in the field of uh, shantong and then uh, that's how the whole project started yeah mm-hmm. i don't know whether uh, you want to know more about uh, the history of how the book was produced uh... <laughs> no that's okay yeah. i
1: think we can jump yeah. right into the book so i think the mm. thing that really struck me was like he's already mentioned the number of scholars who are involved in this project and also the fact that this is the newest thing that's trying to engage with the Ranton Shintong argument, which has been a huge problem debate uh, for many, many years. So yeah, I guess we can jump right into the book and tell us a bit more about the contents.
2: Okay. Fair enough. Uh, I think uh, it's important uh, to say something about uh, the Rangtong, Shentong uh, distinction a bit. Uh, it's not so much uh, about uh, that there are some like sources, like the sutra, some sutras or some uh, treatises, some tantras, which support uh, the view that there is something left in emptiness, that there is something existing ultimately, which is empty of other, which does not belong to it. But uh, the point is that uh, we have two different competing models of uh, hermeneutics. So uh, one uh, is following mainly the uh, hermeneutics of uh, Chandra Kirti, And uh, the other one follows the hermeneutics of the Yogacara and Tathagata Garba school. Uh, that's uh, mainly based on uh, the Sandhinyamochna Sutra and where uh, three cycles of uh, teaching are uh, propounded. And uh, so this uh, opposition between uh, Rangtong and Shentong, or self-empty and other-empty, can be traced back uh, to India, uh, to the beginning of the Yogacara school, and uh, then the reaction of the Madhyamakas to the Yogacara school. Michael, do you like to uh, add in something, or shall I just... No,
0: that's great. You know, I think um, just the conception of the book was really to bring together these international collaborators. I think there's 11 authors, including Klaus and myself, and they're really leaders in the field. I mean, um, there's very few scholars who have been publishing on Genton. Um As we begin our book, and... Uh, the introduction that Klaus and I co-authored, really there's been a preponderance of scholarship in English language and arguably Western languages on uh, Rangtong presentations of emptiness, as if that is um, the exclusive, almost, uh, as it's largely been presented, um, understanding of what emptiness is, according to Tibetans and even um, from the Indian canonical literature. And yet that's not um, the case in Tibet. And it's not the case amongst Tibetan thinkers historically. So what we do in this what this book does is a kind of collaboration of scholars is brings these different voices and perspectives um, into conversation about what is Zhentong, about the multiplicities of Zhentong, about the diversities and varieties of Zhentong philosophical thinking. And in so doing, really hopefully complements and, uh, and, and kind of enriches our understanding, our fuller kind of intellectual history of what emptiness is, presentations of emptiness have been, um, you know, over the last thousand years in Tibet.
1: That's correct. Yes. I notice how you cover all of the different traditions and all these wonderful authors from the Tibetan history are covered also.
2: Yeah, and maybe I like uh, to add that uh, the Tibetan discussion about Shantong and Rangtong is a continuation of what we had already in India. And uh, so we can uh, look at uh, the Moshna Sutra and uh, the, uh, like, uh, definition of the uh, three Dharma Chakras, the three wheels of uh, teaching and uh, how they define them. And uh, like, we have on the one hand the Yogachara school, which says that the third Dharma Chakra, the third wheel of teaching which uh, contains Yogacara works and uh, Tathagatakabar works or Buddha nature works uh, is a definitive meaning. And that means that uh, the uh, idea prevails that uh, Buddha nature ideas, that uh, Shentong ideas uh, were the like uh, final intention of the Buddha. So that means that uh, the whole corpus of the Buddhist teaching, including Madhyamaka and everything else, needs to be interpreted against the background of the Sandhya Namojana Sutra and the Shantong interpretation. Whereas uh, the other camp, those who follow Chandra Kirti, they uh, criticize the Sandhya Namojana Sutra and find fault with yogachara, uh, with the Yogacara tenet such that uh, they claim a cutoff potential, that a big group of sentient beings uh, cannot attain uh, Buddhahood at all, or that they uh, claim the ultimate existence of something dependently arising, which is uh, philosophically not uh, possible, according to the Madhyamaka school. And then uh, they argue in line with uh, Dhammakirti or based on uh, Dhammakirti, how can you follow the hermeneutic of a sutra which has uh, so uh, serious faults? And uh, then uh, the reaction was, well, sorry, but uh, the Yogacara uh, system doesn't have these faults. Yeah? So, like, uh, we are not c- uh, claiming the ultimate existence of the dependent nature, and we don't really mean that. Uh, a big group of sentient beings is completely cut off uh, the possibility to attain a Buddha because everybody has a Buddha nature and everybody has a fundamental natural potential. So uh, these kind of discussions uh, were going on since uh, the 6th and 7th century or even earlier. And uh, I mean, I could go a little bit more into detail and uh, like uh, how the Chunang Pass and the Shentong Pass uh, defended uh, their hermeneutics, uh, which is quite interesting. And uh, you find that in the introduction of our book, and uh, I don't know like whether you want to have a summary of that or not, but maybe... <laughs> yeah, it's uh, like... Uh, well, what Chandra Kirti does is, uh, in his Madhyamaka Avatara, uh, which is his main uh, Madhyamaka work... Uh, he criticizes uh, the Yogacara school and the Yogacara tenet. And basically, he uses uh, the Madhyamaka uh, argument for uh, that things cannot arise from other. Yeah? That means, you know, like that uh, if something uh, is really separate, uh, then it cannot uh, function as a cause. So if causes and, and effects are completely separate from each other, if they exist inherently Uh, in an independent way, there can be no mutual interaction. And uh, so there cannot be uh, an arising from other. And uh, based on this argument, uh, Chandrakirti refutes the uh, Yogachara uh, model of reality, which claims that there is a a dependent nature. And then, uh, and that's even more interesting now, is that uh, he, like... uh, Explains why the Buddha was teaching the Yogacara all the same. And uh, then uh, his hermeneutics uh, start. And uh, he explains that, uh, well, there uh, is a need uh, to encourage uh, students. Uh, who would uh, turn away from Buddhism if you told them that everything is empty of an own nature. So in order to encourage them, uh, you need uh, to tell them, well, don't worry, you have a Buddha nature. And uh, then uh, that means that the teaching of a Buddha nature, and uh, on which uh, our Shentong uh, doctrine is based, would have only provisional meaning. You would tell it only... Uh, students who are frightened of the profound and deep uh, understanding of emptiness. And then uh, he quotes uh, the Lankavatara Sutra. And uh, the way uh, like, uh, you find in the Lankavatara Sutra uh, a dialogue uh, between the Bodhisattva Mahamati and the Buddha. And uh, Mahamati asks the Buddha, well, why did you teach uh, Buddha nature, and uh, which is endowed with uh, all the different uh, qualities, Isn't that uh, a heretic teaching? Isn't that similar to what uh, the non-Buddhists say? And then you have this uh, statement, uh, well, thinking of uh, emptiness and non-arising and uh, wishlessness and so on, I was uh, making use of the word uh, Buddha nature uh, in order uh, to not turn away or frighten uh, students who are afraid of emptiness. Now, uh, Chandrakirti takes this uh, part, this passage, as a proof that uh, the teaching of Buddha nature uh, has uh, only provisional meaning, and that the Buddha was uh, thinking of emptiness when he was uh, teaching Buddha nature. But uh, when you look at the passage uh, carefully in the Lankavatara, uh, it does not say that the teaching of Buddha-nature has provisional meaning. It only says uh, that, uh, that you find an equation of Buddha-nature with emptiness. And now the question arises, does the Lankavatara Sutra teach uh, the Madhyamaka emptiness of uh, Chandra Kirti, or does it uh, rather teach another form of emptiness and when you look at the langavatara sutra it is clear that it's mainly teaching Yogacara emptiness that uh, it's main tenet is a three nature uh, theory and uh, there is one passage in the langavatara uh, which uh, like uh, introduces uh, like a, to a sevenfold uh, distinction of emptiness and it says well because you are too much attached uh, Uh, to like uh, different items, we have to, because you are uh, too much attached to what is uh, the the, uh, imagined nature, we have to make use of the words non-arising and emptiness and so on. So it's clear that the Langavatara somehow restricts the validity of emptiness or understands emptiness in terms of the uh, imagined nature. And uh, then, you know, like it continues and uh, gives different types of emptiness. And uh, what is quite interesting in this whole discussion is the seventh emptiness. It uh, speaks of an inferior emptiness, the emptiness of the one from the other. And uh, like the Langa Bhattara, uh, uses a formula, uh, something like uh, which X is not uh, like uh, found in which Y, uh, that Y is empty of X. Or like uh, to put it in another word, like this room, uh, in this room, Uh, there is no elephant, hence uh, this room is empty of an elephant. Now, you have this formula also in Yogacara and uh, Tathagatagarpa, and uh, in Yogacara, uh, it says that uh, the dependent uh, is empty of the uh, imagined, and in uh, Buddha-nature theory, you have the idea that Buddha-nature is empty of the adventitious stains. But the main difference to the Langavatara is like when the Langavatara Sutra is teaching uh, the emptiness of the one from the other, then uh, it uh, like, uh, gives us an example, a place in the jungle, uh, which is not empty of monks, but it is empty of elephants and other ele- animals. Sorry. And uh, that means you know, like that a particular place is empty of a particular like, uh, animal. But uh, to say this place in the jungle is empty of, ele- of elephants... Doesn't mean that elephants don't exist at all. I mean, you find elephants in the zoo or in Africa. Uh, It's only a particular place uh, where no elephants exist. But in Yogacara, you have like uh, wherever you are in the universe. Wherever you have a dependently arising mind, it's always empty of the subject-object duality. And wherever you have uh, uh, Buddha nature, it's always empty of adventitious stains. So even though the formula of emptiness is very similar, you cannot say that the meaning is the same. So you cannot uh, like, uh, say that Yogacara and uh, Buddha nature emptiness is uh, the inferior emptiness of the uh, langavatara. And the Chonankas, they point out, there is another emptiness uh, like uh, in this list, which says that uh, the wisdom of the noble ones is empty of uh, yeah, the all the uh, defilements and uh, the, imprints, the mental imprints of the defilements. So that would qualify much more for uh, as uh, like a proper form of emptiness. So what I'm saying is the Langavatara Sutra's idea of emptiness is not what Chandra Kirti understands as emptiness. And uh, when the Langavatara equates Buddha nature with emptiness, uh, it uh, basically does not uh, like establish a Madhyamaka emptiness of Buddha nature, but has an idea that something like luminosity or Buddha nature is empty of other of the uh, imagined nature or the adventitious stains. But uh, when you look at the Langavatara in this way, uh, then, you know, like, uh, it does not, like, follow that uh, Buddha nature has only provisional meaning. And there is one other, like, uh, uh, Chandra Kirti uh, then also quotes another part of from the Langavatara where he says, like, the Buddha has taught mind only uh, to, as a medicine for those who are too much attached uh, to external material objects. Now, if you read only this verse, uh, which uh, is quoted by Chandrakirti, you would agree, so, okay, you know, so there are some students, they have very strong attachments, so you need a very strong medicine for them. Okay, you tell them everything is mind only. So, uh, when you only look at this verse, you would agree with Chandrakirti and uh, think, well, the Yogacara teaching of mind only, only has provisional meaning. But when you go to the Langavatara Sutra, and nobody is really doing that, uh, except maybe the Chonangpas And then and, and, and the next verse, uh, it says, well, uh, the teaching of mind only is very difficult to understand. It cannot be understood by the philosophers, and it cannot be understood by the uh, followers of the uh, like small vehicle, the Shravakas. And uh, the Buddha is teaching from his own experience. So, like, if you just read the next verse in the Langavatara, it is clear that uh, the mind-only uh, teaching, and thus uh, the main tenet of the Yogacara school, uh, like, uh, has uh, definitive meaning and uh, is not a provisional teaching. So you could, like, uh, just by going back to the uh, sutras and uh, the different material, like Chandrakirti quotes, and analyzing this material you can find fault with uh, Chandra Kirti. And uh, this is precisely what the Chonang Pass did. You know, they, they, they just went back to the sutras and uh, uh, look and uh, explained, look, uh, like uh, just read the Lankavatara Sutra and you know that uh, Chandra Kirti is not quoting properly in this point. And, uh, but, you know, the Rangtong Pass, they, they, they just follow Chandra Kirti and uh, Chandra Kirti's analysis. And uh, the whole analysis is not questioned anymore because nobody in Tibet really goes back to the sutras except the Chunan Yes, yeah, so
1: I was just going to ask how does that play out on the basis of this in some of the sources that were covered by the contributors in your book?
0: Yeah, so, uh, you know, as Klaus has so eloquently explained, we have all of the source literature, Indic uh, Sanskrit source literature, the sutras, and the five works of Maitreya. And as these were translated into Tibetan and received by Tibetans, there are um, problems that are also received um, by the Tibetans and how to interpret this. And there are histories of these problems and and paradoxes and histories of these paradoxes. And in the reception of these um, materials into Tibetan, uh, of not only text, but ideas and philosophical problems and paradoxes and puzzles, uh, we find um, Tibetans finding different ways uh, to work through these problems. And in so doing, coming up with different uh, hermeneutical techniques, right? Interpretive techniques, different methods to think through these problems and um, configure them in, in new and creative ways. So we This project um, has really sought out people um, who've been working on thinkers, Tibetan thinkers, um, who've been thinking through, um, in really creative ways through the history of Tibetan thought, some of these issues around uh, these two modes of emptiness, rangtong on the one hand, being that of inherent uh, empty nature. And Zhentong of the other, meaning that uh, things are uh, empty of everything other than the luminous, continuous nature of the mind and of, um, of Buddha nature and so forth. So, you know, we begin with David Higgins, who has um, this paper on early Dzogchen and Nyingma thinking around the concept of bodhigarbha. And... Um, there was some very creative uh, thinking at that time of this kind of inception period, um, of the early phase of um, the reception of Indic ideas into Tibet and with the Nyingma Paz, early Nyingma Paz. And then we have a paper by Tsering Wangchuk who explores Rigby tree and um, some of the ideas um, around what we can call sort of proto gentong uh, ideas um, that get formulated um, at Nartong Gompa and um, with a whole series of thinkers, including um, Chomden Rigpe who's you know 13th century, and Jyotong Munlam Sultram, um who are inheriting again uh, lineages or streams of interpretation from uh, the five treatises of Maitreya and so forth, coming through. Um, and so forth. Um, next, we have uh, a paper by myself on Do Polpa's hermeneutics and how he had really framed Zhentong and used language of uh, Zhentong, Rongtong, and, and other uh, dharmic vocabulary to specify these concepts in really discreet and clear ways, but also how he saw gentong as being part of a larger language dharmic language um, for modeling his understanding of uh reality for the nature of reality and that's deeply embedded in time and space for him and um also text right canonical source literature for him primarily the kalachakra um, tantra and its um commentarial tradition um as well as the Sutric sources that Klaus alluded to. And next, we have Dorje Ningcha, who offers this really critical um, piece on one of the Opopa students' uh, texts that has been recently recovered from the deep archives inside Tibet, inside central Tibet. And it was lost. um, And it's a very rare manuscript um, that came out over the last... uh, well over the last two decades and uh, Georgian ningcha um, uh, recovers this text uh, from uh, Garung le chotsen who is one of the popas uh, primary disciples but the text is a polemical text in which he is actually in conversation and actually in debate with remdawa and uh, with thinkers like uh, 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 you know song um, mentor and it, Captures these kind of polemical back and forth um, issues between uh, what becomes Geluk-baz and Jonangpa's at this critical moment in um, the intellectual history there in the late 14th, early 15th century. And then next we have a paper by Klaus in which he um, goes through and unpacks uh, Zhentong views in the Karma tradition. And that's followed. By uh, a paper by Martina Drazecki, who um, again unpacks thinkers in the Kagyu tradition um, who have been really critical in formulating um, ideas around Zhentong. We have the eighth Karmapa, Mikyo Dorje, um, who's well known, but also the first Karmapa, uh, first Karma Trinli. Um, the seventh Karmapa, Chujak Yamso, the second Jarmapa Kachu Wangpo, and so forth. So Martina um, goes through in her contribution and, and unpacks them and, and really brings them to light. Um, next, we have a chapter on Shaky Chogden's interpretation by Yaroslav Komarovsky, who's done um, you know a lot of work on Shaki Chogden and um, brings... Shaky Chukten's unique view into the conversation, which is a really critical moment, again, in the history of Zhentong thinking, because it was often thought that um, until Shaky Chukten's works were recovered in the um, you know late 20th century, um, that uh, this was a blackout period and that there were not authors, particularly Sakya authors, who, who wrote on Zhentong. Um, but we now know that that's not the case. And then we have, a t- uh, again, following chronologically in order here, another paper by Klaus in which he um, illuminates Taranatha's paper, uh, t- Taranatha's text in his paper on Dolpopa and Chokten's views. That really um, is a Tibetan making sense of disparate Tibetan views of Tsongkhapa. Again, a kind of fasc- fascinating um, piece. And then next, we have Matthew Kapstein, who um, uh, contributes a piece on Nyingma interpretations of Tong, And um, this, along with uh, David Higgins' piece, and then uh, pieces that I'll get to in a moment, uh, really bring to light some of these uh, disparate views within the broader Nyingma tradition. And in particular, Matthew Kapstein focuses his work or his paper on Leilung, uh, on uh, Lochen Dharma Shri, rather, and um, the thought around Zhentong uh, and Rongtong distinctions within the enigma system, according to uh, a text that he wrote. Next, we have Douglas Duckworth, who does um, uh, a paper on Mipham. Uh, so... We have two papers on Mipam in here, uh, him along with Dorje Wangchuk. And Mipam Jamso is one of the critical Nyingma thinkers on Zhentong. And the two of them, both Douglas Duckworth and Dorje Wangchuk, present um, different views on Mipam's thinking um, around uh, different issues concerning Zhentong. And from that, we have a paper by Marc André de Roche on uh, remade discourses around Zhentong, and in particular, Jamyang Control and Jamyang Kensei Wampo's presentations of Zhentong um, and how they use Zhentong uh, as a platform for uh, Rime thinking and the Rimei discourses at the turn of the century. And then the last piece, um, the last chapter in the volume is one by myself in which I talk about Kempo Lodjujakpa in the Jonang scholastic renaissance in the 20th century and how through, um, the revival of thinkers, largely based on, on work set, um, in motion by Jammyong control. And before that, by, um, uh, by Katol Norbu, we have a renaissance of thinkers uh, who are Jonang and who have been now in Amdo by that time. Um, uh, you know, um, from, well, you know, from the 17th century, um, but even before, and um, have a scholastic renaissance of sorts amongst the Jinangpa. So it really has a kind of whole vision, a whole kind of arc. Not to say that we're all inclusive of all Zhentong thinkers, but you get to see a kind of arc um, of the trajectory of different types of thinkers through the volume.
1: So I guess there's two things going on here. There's the Tibetan thinkers interpreting the original Indian works. And then there's also Tibetan thinkers interpreting earlier Tibetan thinkers and trying to bring that all together in their arguments. Can you say a little bit more about how they do this and what comes out of that? That's fascinating.
2: Well, that's a a very uh, good question. And uh, we have to, up to now, we were just presenting Shantong as if there was just a Shantong view, or just one way of how something ultimate can be empty of something which does not belong to it. But uh, in fact, there are uh, different types of Shantong. And uh, I started to realize that when I uh, started uh, to study uh, Taranatas, uh, analysis of uh, Shakya Chokten and Dolpopa and uh, the main difference uh, between the two uh, according to Taranata but also like when you go to the works of Dolpopa and uh, Shakya Chokten themselves that can be confirmed is that the the ultimate for uh, Dolpopa is really something uh, transcendent, it's beyond space and time and uh, it's uh, permanent in the sense that it's outside of time and, uh, so, like, uh, and the relative is, is everything else. It's, uh, so the dependent arising, uh, does not belong to the ultimate truth, uh, for Dolpopa and also other, uh, Chunangpas. That's something really important, uh, to remember when you talk about, uh, Chunang Shentong. Whereas for, uh, Shakyat Chokden and, uh, also some of the Kakyu authors, like, uh, uh, yeah, the seventh and the eighth Kamapa and, uh, Others, like Kontra uh, Lotretaye, they have a different idea of what the basis uh, of negation is. So they start from a kind of uh, like a non-dual wisdom, which is still inside space and time. It's also permanent, but, but only like a permanent in the sense of a continuous flow yeah it, it it's just the dharmakaya or the buddha nature which becomes the dharmakaya it it remains in samsara as long as there are suffering sentient beings and uh, which need help so only in this sense uh, it uh, remains and uh, is uh, permanent but uh, like it is uh, uh, still a, a kind of dynamic principle uh, which uh, continues in a continuous flow so, uh, like uh, Taranata just summarizes uh, uh, Shakya Chokden's view as uh, well, uh, for him, the uh, like non dual wisdom, the ultimate wisdom, is still a kind of possessing moments, whereas for Dolpopai does not. And that's directly related also to how uh, you interpret the three nature model of Yogachara. Uh, maybe I should uh, say uh, like a, a few things about it. Uh, in Yogacara philosophy, uh, the mind has uh, three different natures or three different aspects. First of all, it is uh, the dependent nature of our like dependently arising mind, our mind stream which continues, but uh, like as something dependently arising. And uh, it contains imprints and uh, seeds uh, and uh, these seeds and imprints like cause uh, the dualistic appearance of a perceived object and a perceiving uh, subject. And uh, in the sense that there is no external uh, material world, but it's only a projection of uh, a mind stream which is an amount uh, of false imagining. And uh, now the Yogacharas normally say, Well, what is real is this dependently arising mind. It's a dependent nature and it's empty of uh, the wrongly imagined uh, duality. And they use uh, the example of uh, the snake and the rope. So you walk uh, at dawn in a jungle, you see a coiled up uh, rope and you're afraid, oh, a snake. So uh, the coiled up rope would be the dependent nature. It's really, it's really there. But uh, your wrong perception of the rope as a snake that would be the imagined nature so you would uh, the yogacara would say the the rope is empty of snakehood yeah so so that what is really there the dependently arising mind uh, is empty of uh, the wrongly uh, imagined uh, duality and uh, the perfect nature would be just uh, the dependent nature empty of the imagined nature that would be the like a more standard Way of uh, Shentong in Yogachara. But then you, you have uh, alternatively a different model uh, which uh, favors uh, like the Buddha nature idea, which is empty of adventitious stains. And uh, when you relate Buddha nature idea to uh, the three nature model, you have to accommodate the, also the dependent nature in the uh, adventitious stains. Like uh, So, the uh, what is negated is then not only the imagined nature, but also that which causes it, so to say, the dependent nature. And then you end up with a model like having uh, the perfect nature, uh, which is equal to the Buddha nature, and this is empty of the imagined and the dependent. So, that already, you know, constituted two different models of Shantong, and you had that already in India. And uh, you can imagine that uh, by the time uh, these different models reached Tibet, they were further differentiated in uh, more like uh, models of uh, Shantong uh, emptiness. And uh, but uh, like uh, this distinction between the original Yogachara uh, Shantong, which is represented by Shakyat Chokden, and uh, the Buddha nature type of Shantong, where the Buddha nature is empty of imagined and dependent, uh, as represented by Dolpopa are the two main varieties of shantong.
1: Yes. That's very clear. Thank you so much. And um is there something you know in the way that the scholars who have contributed to this volume in the way that they interpret the sources that tell us a bit more about what you've just explained but from kind of their interpretive perspectives.
0: Yeah, so Tibetans were wrestling with these um, problems, with these issues. And what we see here is an intellectual history and a literary history um, that gives, again, a kind of arc to these problems. And there's not you know, a solution um, to how to resolve some of these problems and, and puzzles. In fact, what we find um, are Tibetan thinkers who are... Um, working within the confines of a tradition, um, an intellectual tradition, a literary tradition, a cultural tradition um, that's, that's Buddhist. Um, and yet uh, creativity is emergent in their thought, right? So there's this kind of um, tension between holding the forms of the tradition and um, the scripture, you know, the canonical kind of sources and so forth, and at the same time, understanding that there are interpretive modes and there are creative and, um, ways of expressing this. And there's new language that um, can be um, evolved in these kind of expressions. And we find this through thinkers all the way up um, through the Tibetan tradition. And I think that each of the um, exemplary chapters in this volume Um, speak to that kind of creativity of Tibetan thinking and that kind of, um, again, sort of wrestling with ideas, because there's this inherent tension between that which is empty um, because it's temporary and it's tangible and it's observably empty, right? It lacks an intrinsic identity. And that is there and it's, it's part of the uh, Buddhist understanding of the nature of things. And yet there's also this understanding that there's something other than what's empty, right? There's something that's continuous. There's something that's constant. There's something that's luminous. And that gets called the great emptiness, right? The gentong, that which is empty, uh, um of everything other than that. So how do you reconcile these? And as um, uh, Klaus was explaining, there's different models that come from from the Indic literature, but also um, that were used, employed, and commentated upon by the Tibetans to sort of reconcile these tensions. And yet um, there's also a a complementarity because for the Zhentong thinkers, it's not like there's no wrong tongue right it's not that wrong tongue um doesn't exist there's no denial of the intrinsically empty nature of temporary tangible phenomena no not at all in fact what they're saying is that there's a whole complementarity here and that we need to look at and that was very much from dopopa onward certainly the project um and then there become Different her- hermeneutical frames and interpretive ways of thinking and writing, expressing, communicating that. But nonetheless, there are again these kind of intrinsic puzzles that they're they're working through around relative and ultimate nature of things, and how is that reconciled experientially through contemplation, through meditative experience, um, let along through the kind of everyday observable phenomena. Um, so what we find here is a kind of um, history of a problem and people throughout the Tibetan um, intellectual tradition really finding ways to, to, to think through these issues.
1: Thank you. Yes.
2: So it's, yeah, one, one, yeah. Yeah, one should maybe also add that uh, uh, the chonanpas restrict the emptiness of uh, self or the tong. Uh, to the level of relative truth and uh, that's of course in the eyes of the Gelupas that would be something outrageous. Yeah. They, they would never accept that. I mean, so uh, there are really different camps and uh, there, there has been a lot of uh, discussion backward and forward uh, going on. But, well, the whole thing is that, like, uh, we have a, a, a Tibetan Buddhist canon, uh, the Kanchur and the tensure, the words of the Buddha, which includes, according to the Tibetan tradition also, like the Mahayana, like uh, texts and teachings, and the Tantras, and then you have all these Indian commentaries uh, from different uh, like uh, camps. You know, you have the Madhyamaka, the Pure Madhyamakas. Then you have the different types of Yogachara. Then you have uh, Buddha Nature uh, sutras and teachings. Then you have the, the Tantras, like the Kala Chakra, with the concept of a primordial Buddha that you are already a fully developed Buddha throughout beginningless time. Now, you know, like uh, how do you bring that all together? So, like, if this is all the word of the Buddha and if, uh, like, uh, all these commentaries are valid, good commentaries by Indian, like, scholar practitioners, so how do you explain? And then uh, you have different hermeneutical systems, you have the hermeneutics of Chandra Kirti. you have the hermeneutics of the Yogacharas, you have the hermeneutics of the Buddha nature. So, that's uh, setting, you know, the, the rules of the game and uh, with that you know you you have really different options yeah and uh, the goal is always uh, to formulate one consistent uh, like uh, a stringent uh, yeah teaching which includes all the buddha words so that's uh, the big uh, aim always you know whether you follow Chandra chandrakirti or whether you follow uh, the Sandhya emotional sutra uh, you need to uh, explain well, if you follow, if you decide uh, to have a Shantong view, you need to be able. To explain not only the Maitreya works and not only the like uh, the, the Buddha nature and, and some Kalachakra passages which support you directly, but you need also to interpret the Prajnaparamita. You need to uh, be able to interpret everything. And in, uh, on the other side, if you decide to go with Chandrakirti, then you have to explain why, like uh, the Buddha taught, like the Buddha nature and all that, and how could uh, Buddha nature all the same mean rangtong And, uh, like, uh, you can see, like, uh, that, uh, given the complexity of uh, the, like, uh, parameters, uh, like, all, like, uh, different forms of uh, interpretations can develop. And basically that happened in Tibet. So you you have, like, uh, right uh, from the beginning of the second diffusion of uh, Buddhism and probably uh, already much earlier, as, uh, like, uh, David Higgins has shown in his uh, article, uh, like different varieties of explaining, uh, you know, the whole corpus of uh, Buddhist teaching.
1: Um, so another thing that jumped out at me was the extensiveness of the notes for each of the chapters, which for me was very useful in looking at, you know, the sources, pointing me in different directions to kind of look into that more in the original sources. So, do you have a vision for how you'd want this? book used for research for teaching out in the world that now it's there
0: yeah thank you i mean this is something that klaus and i um, discussed throughout the project and along with our editors at, at suny and there was a point uh before this book not too long ago uh where there was no source book to study Zhentong. Um uh, in an undergraduate or, or a graduate seminar on Buddhist philosophy or um, world thought, uh, et cetera. And uh, let alone, you know, Tibetan philosophy. And we thought one of the things we want to accomplish um, is to do, is to present serious scholarship on this topic from a variety of international um, scholars who are thinking through different Tibetan um, issues and, and, and uh, exemplary figures. But we also wanna make it accessible to undergraduate audiences, to graduate audiences who are learning Tibetan, as well as the specialists. So we did our best to really um, provide names and phonetics, for instance, but and, and dump a lot of the annotated uh, information, and including um, Wiley for text and, you know, transliteration for uh, Tibetan and so on and so forth, um, all the technical notes into end notes so that none of that is lost. And um, people who are interested in doing graduate work or, or, or scholarship in general have this resource book. But it's also something that somebody who is teaching in an undergraduate university who wants to um, have... Uh, Some representation of Tibetan thought can pull a chapter or can use the whole volume. Um, And we thought it was important that um, there be a source book for studying Zhentong for people who are uh, students as well as scholars.
1: I think you successfully did that, at least from my understanding of the book so far. (laughs) So, congratulations.
0: And practitioners as well. I cannot tell you how often, you know, I have people who um are just interested in Zhentong, want to learn something about the jonang or so on and so forth and they'll email me and I mean it's uh, I'm sure Klaus is the same there's so there's such a hunger amongst um, uh, you know Dharma practitioners to learn more and we wanted to give them something that they could uh, read as well because there's so little published on these topics in English language
2: Yeah, it's definitely a, a very much needed uh, study and book, and especially uh, for practitioners who meditate, because like uh, when you uh, talk about the ultimate qualities, uh, which are not empty, uh, you need to have some kind of like meditation experience. So it it talks to a, like a meditator. Uh, you see like uh, when you are doing philosophy and you analyze you 're in a conceptual mind frame and so you're you 're still caught in a subject object duality, even though you might have a very subtle like model of reality. You're still caught in this conceptual mind, but uh, like when you meditate and uh, like have some glimpses of saukchan or mahamudra experience, then uh, like uh, you also experience emptiness. And then when you like uh, after you have established or you see that everything lacks an independent existence and uh, is empty, then what you know like uh, are you then in a wake home? Uh, is there a complete nothingness? And uh, no, you know, there there is a kind of luminous presence, a luminous awareness, a pristine awareness which emerges. uh, And uh, uh, that, you know, like uh, can be accessed only like if you go beyond duality and it is inexpressible. So like when you talk about that, like uh, you reify, there's a danger to reify it. So, uh, okay, you know, like you could say, you better don't talk about it at all. But, you know, like you can say, look, you know, like I can t- still try to use language to communicate which is uh, inexpressible. And that's basically what the Buddha did, right? When you go look at the Lalita Vistara Sutra, uh, it says, well, I, the Buddha said, I have found such a profound dharma, so wonderful, but i won't be able to teach it to anybody i better go to the forest and stay quiet and then you know all the story then indra and Brahma came please teach please you know like uh turn the wheel of the dharma and then uh, the buddha for the remaining 45 years of his life he was uh, traveling around in india and uh, he was teaching what is inexpressible so that's the beginning of uh, the buddhist teaching if you want yeah and uh so like uh, this question you know like uh of an ultimate of a luminous Buddha nature, which is empty of the adventitious, that's very much relevant, uh, like for every Buddhist and especially for those who practice.
1: Yes, that's that's correct. And um, I really hope this will achieve everything that you just talked about. And um, I think both of you mentioned when we started um, today that you both had an interest in understanding reality, and that's kind of some of your initial interest into this topic um, so along your journey reading these texts and interpreting them and also writing this book and editing the volume do you feel like some of those questions have been answered about what reality is through this discourse
2: well I think yes everybody just contributed from uh, the study of uh, his or her author and uh, like a nicely presented yeah uh, you know, what like uh, the early Nyingma pass uh, or the Kakupas pass and the chunang pass had to say about this topic. And uh, it's a wonderful volume expressing uh, different uh, views uh, on uh, Shantong and uh, of course you know we we have to continue doing research on on uh, the Chunang school and uh, the Shantong position and that's what we are also doing at the moment here in Vienna we just started a new project with my uh, research assistant uh, Filippo Brambilla and uh, Kempo Tampel who is a Trikun master but uh working for us in the Shantong project on the Chunang Pass and we are working also together with like uh, Kempos in uh, Tsamtang and in Golok and uh so we are uh, looking at how the uh, kalachakra tantra and its indian commentaries vimala prabha can be used as a doctrinal basis for the shentong view and uh, uh we just started this new project and there's so much more to discover and uh, to analyze and i think in the future like uh, there will be more information on the Chunang and shentong
1: Yes, so much. Very, very much look forward to it. And Michael, I know the center at UVA probably has a lot to do with this in the future.
0: Um, Yeah. So on reality, um, I think that um, you know what we're learning. um, I I think is the diversity of views that um, Tibetans had on even uh, you know one single topic. What people have thought. Uh, even scholars, Western scholars, have thought was a kind of monolithic um, presentation by Tibetans, and we're learning that that's not at all the case. There is a wide variety um, of presentations and perspectives and discourses at play in um, the history of Tibetan thought, and um, reality is 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 that right? It's multi perspectival, and um, So I think that this volume represents that, at least in the vein of thinking and philosophical thinking around Zhentong. As far as um, sort of projects on the horizon for me, yeah, here at UVA, we have um, a project that we're undertaking um, to look at contemplative traditions and through models and and methodologies that, that David Germano and I have developed. For looking at contemplative literature, particularly um, practice instruction, guidance texts, procedural instructions, et cetera, and how Tibetans have organized, structured, thematized um, contemplation. And in so doing, our project sort of thinks through, uh, theorizes, and has interpretive frameworks for uh, what we call contemplative literacy. Um, and that the idea of contemplative literacy is something um, that we can uh, discover, it's something that we can unpack through analysis and interpretation. So again, we're developing models and methods for doing that across different contemplative practices and, and traditions um, Tibetan. And then my own work um, on the Jonang, outstanding at the moment, is a, a monograph that I have had in the works which will be an intellectual history of the Jonang tradition. And that's um, something I've been working on for um, some years and I have to uh, be bringing it to fruition in the coming year. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, we'd love to have you back once it's out. Well, thank you. (laughs) Yes, and both of you, um, thank you so much for being with us here today. And I know we've taken up quite a lot of your time already on a Friday, so very much appreciated. And good luck with all of your future work. And um, right, very much look forward to having you both back at some point um, for your future
0: works.
2: Wonderful. Thanks so much. For yeah, that. thank you also so much uh, for your very good questions and uh, for organizing this interview. Thank you so much, Sincerema.